My name is Bill Fontana, and I'm standing in, at the bottom of a spiral staircase leading up to the colonnade and the top of the San Francisco City Hall Rotunda. I work with sound as a sculptural medium, uh, and I've been doing this since the late 1960s. I was interested in uh, the City Hall here because of the remarkable acoustics that this large rotunda space creates. But the way I'm uh, approaching the space is very different than what one might normally expect. In 1979, just shortly after moving to San Francisco, uh, the very first sound piece I'd done uh, was for the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, which at that time was across the street from City Hall. Uh, it was a noontime concert where I set up these large speakers on the ground floor and uh, second floor balconies of City Hall. And I was interested in making the space reverberate you know, as much as I could. Uh, also using environmental sounds. Here in uh, the year 2009, I've taken an opposite approach. And I'm doing something I'd never done before. I'm using ultrasonic emitters, which produce these uh, laser beam-like uh, rays of sound ultrasound that are acting as a, a carrier signal for, for audio. The audio is encoded onto it and is modulated by the, the ultrasonic frequencies and doesn't become a sound in the space until it either bounces off a wall or happens to hit somebody's ear walking in the rotunda. I have four ultrasonic emitters, uh, which are 24-inch square flat uh, discs that are mounted on four-pan salt heads that are slowly moving and aimed at the reflective surfaces in City Hall. Uh, the, these emitters are very different than working with a conventional speaker. A conventional speaker is designed to be very linear in its uh, frequency response so that virtually any sound you play from it is supposed to sound good. Because the ultrasonic emitter is in some ways violating the laws of physics, because you're actually hearing a sound from a signal that's going, going at five, five or six times the highest frequency that you can hear. It's going at 100,000 cycles per second. So uh, it's kind of hard to fit a low frequency sound in such a little space as a kind of the wavelength of an ultrasonic frequency. So the sounds that sort of really work best from these emitters tend to be fairly uh, mid-range and high-pitched sounds. Uh, the sounds that are really predominant in this piece are lots of birds, various uh, Northern California birds, song sparrows, mockingbirds, uh, some great woodpeckers. Um, water, moving water, especially underwater sounds, uh, is actually very, very nice from these uh, speakers. It's just kind of like the right, right pitch. And there's a lot of, a lot of uh, moving water it is sort of softly kind of floating and hovering around in the City Hall Rotunda. And also, uh, maybe the real star of the show are the are recordings I made of the historic 
tram streetcars from the F-Line that I'd recorded at close range in the Geneva yard. And these, I made a composition where these, these various uh, tram bells kind of punctuate the space. Uh, and it, what's interesting about using them is a natural ambient sound of City Hall is the bells from the elevators. So you've got, you naturally have these soft elevator bells kind of sounding in the space, and then you've got these tram bells. But when you're walking around down there, none of these sounds reverberate in the space. Uh, they kind of are very pointillistic in a way as sound events. If you know, one might hit you directly in the ear, or one may reflect off a shape. And as you walk around in the space, you're, you're, each person in the space is actually going to hear their own version of the piece. There's not like, you know, John Cage used to say that every seat in the house is the best one. Well, I would say that every spot in City Hall is probably the best place to hear it because no, no point is going to be the same. And because the sounds are moving and reflecting, it, it's really a kind of acoustical drawing, really, of, uh, you know, of the space. Hi, my name is Sam Spivak, and we're here at New Langton Arts uh, in the gallery space. We're located in San Francisco in the South of Market area. And we're here at Every Sound You Can Imagine, which is our new show. Um, it's a rainy Friday morning, and we're just looking at some of these pieces, which are uh, musical scores. And the idea is music as a form of drawing and visual notation. Um, there are about 85 works in this show, which range from 1951 to 2007. Um, New Arts has been around in San Francisco since 1975. It's one of the original alternative uh, nonprofit gallery spaces. And one of the main core ideas of New Langton has always been uh, interdisciplinary art. This show is very much in keeping with that idea because um, here you'll see dialogue between um, music as drawing, as poetry, as um, performance, as visual objects. So it's very much in keeping with the Langton idea. I'm Robert Shimshak and I'm one of the co-curators of this show along with Christoph Cox. And a good part of the works in this collection are from my own collection. Uh, this show was first uh, shown at and organized by the Contemporary Art Museum in Houston. The uh, genesis of, of the whole thing began some time ago. I was uh, in the studio of uh, one of the great conceptual artists, Joseph Kozuth, and I was looking at some of his work. At that time, he was producing these uh, works uh, where he was using canceled sentences uh, with lines going across them. And as he was showing me through his studio, he had this uh, John Cage manuscript on the wall. And it was very impressive because I could see, it was like a revelation, I could see immediately that, you know, where he was getting his inf inspiration from. But I sort of started seeing the, the, the connection between conceptual art and, and this musical manuscripts. 
And John Cage really was one of the really first conceptualists when it came down to it. So for me, this was a really important re revelation. And, I, and it made me look at the musical scores in a completely different way as, as beautiful drawings. Even the most, even the most standard you know, scores are obviously open to a lot of interpretation. I mean, it's not like, you know, I'm not a musician, but even I know that, that that's true. So no two works are, you know, it's, it's conceptual works, I like that, conceptual artworks. If you make the work, well, the next time you make the work, which it's not gonna be the exact same work, but it is the exact same work. Uh, and the next time a piece of music is played, um, it's not gonna be the same as the last time. No matter, it's gonna be a different musician, it's gonna be a slightly different style, tempo might be, you know, whatever. It's, gonna, it's, it's never the same. That's in a way that's different from looking at a fixed, like a, going to the museum looking at a painting. In, that, in which case, the painting really is pretty much always the same. It's just your reaction to it may be different. Whereas in works like this, where the work doesn't exist in its own right, it exists as an idea, then it's cha it changes every time. The big radical step by John Cage, of course, or, the, or Stockhausen, or some of these other people, Earl Brown, was to transfer the ability to the musician to make the music they wanted, essentially. So there's really two types of music here, or two types of scores here. There's the more conventional scores, and then there are these sort of scores as uh, really almost abstract drawings uh, that allow a lot of freedom and, then there's many, and it turns out that there are many ways to allow this. You know, you can use whatever symbols you want. So, so it's uh, whether it be, you know, as I said, letters or words or Hebrew letters or, or just, you know, blobs on a paper or many different things, just lines, forms, geometric forms. There's, it's fascinating the number of ways it can be done. When you have a, one of these traditional scores, I mean, you're, you're supposed to play them, theoretically, the way, you know, the way they're written. But if you look at the premises of conceptual art, somebody like, you know, Lawrence Wiener, who sort of laid down the, 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 the parameters, you know, the work can be made or not made. You know, it, 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 it exists in the hands of the receiver of the work. Because, and then the person who owns it, or in this case, the musicians own it can interpret the work as they wish. And the, the two are equal and the same as the wish of the artist. So the musician and the composer are achieving the same ends.